You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Deep Purple Podcast. If you are listening to this, you've probably listened to our Ronnie James Dio tribute special. And this is a bonus episode, which is an expanded full interview that we had with James Curl, the author of Ronnie James Dio, a biography of a heavy metal icon. John and I had the opportunity to uh, have a long chat with him about his book and about Dio's career. And this is the entirety of that chat. So enjoy. All right. Our first guest is a uh, Mr. James Curl, the um, author of this Ronnie James Dio, a biography of a heavy metal icon. Get the glare out of there. Um, so, yeah. So, James, thank you so much for uh, stopping by our show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Our, our pleasure. So um, excellent book. Lots of great uh, firsthand accounts of Dio and uh, stories about his background and his history and lots of really awesome stuff. So um, I guess if you could start us off, just tell us a little bit about what was your what was your gateway into Dio? How did you discover Dio and get interested? Uh, probably back in the 80s, uh, MTV, watching, uh, you know, Holy Diver and uh, Last in Line, all, all the songs off those albums on that were on MTV. And, you know, everybody back in the 80s, when I was a kid, we were playing Dungeons and Dragons because video games weren't really that huge yet. So we played Dungeons and Dragons and listened to Ronnie James Dio. That is like you know, a, so that's what got me started with Ronnie. Perfect match right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with all of his uh, his uh, you know dragon esque and, and and medieval esque lyrics. It's amazing to think that they played Dio on MTV. Right, right. <laughs> it's yeah. Before it became, I mean, I guess that was a little bit more popular back then. But um, so in the book, um, you tell some really great stories about him growing up and uh, playing the trumpet and how that you know he thinks that like that trumpet control or that that breath control is what gave him that big big voice. Um, what in 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 researching your book, like how how much. How, how much did you go into his early beginnings and, and, and what it was like as a child, child growing up? Uh, as much as I could, I interviewed a couple of the guys that were in his early bands and uh, just any information I could get from those guys uh, went into the book, you know, basically everything I could get, which wasn't a whole ton, but uh, I've, I've since learned some other stuff that I would love to add, like uh, back in, uh, which didn't go in the book, Ronnie and the guys used to wear leather jackets as they did in the fifties. And he was part of a group, uh, basically you can, you can call it a gang or, or a group or a club, uh, called the angels. And I wish I could have got that in the book, you know, cause I was talking to one of his, uh, one of his childhood friends I'm friends with on Facebook. And, uh, but I just, I interviewed those, those guys that were in, uh, Ronnie and the red caps back in the fifties and, and Ronnie and the rumblers, all that information. I put it in the book anything I can get. That's awesome. Um, so Ronnie's, uh, they, there's some, there's a lot of talk like in the book about how, um, 
You see, I mean, it kind of goes all back and forth. Like your from your experience from talking to people, I everyone that talks about him, well, for the most part, seems to talk very positively about him, like being the most generous, open like guy in the world. But also that there was this kind of this, uh, maybe mean streak with him too. Like what? Um, what do you what 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 did you learn about that kind of the dichotomy there is within Ronnie there? I did learn that he was a very generous individual, which I didn't know at all, uh, particularly with, with uh, some of the charities he was involved with, like Children of the Night. And I have a quote in there from, from uh, I can't remember the, the lady's name now that runs Charity of the Night, but she said Ronnie was extremely generous with his time and money. You know, he was very giving. But yeah, he did have a tough guy streak. And Claude Schnell talks about it at times too, when Claude and I talk about Ronnie. You know, despite being a little guy, he didn't take any crap from anyone anyone and even Vivian Campbell you know when I interviewed Vivian Vivian said Ronnie had a very hard exterior at times you know he was very much a he, he, he wasn't afraid despite being a, a little guy well and Vivian you know? was bore the brunt of that sometimes so right, right. Boy, yeah. <laughs> so, so John you're growing up John is kind of who introduced me to Dio um me and my cousin Jeff we lived next door to each other and John was kind of our gateway and um uh, I, I think my probably my my first entryway to him was with him in Black Sabbath. Um, John, what do you where where was your first? Where would you first kind of gather your first impressions of Dio? Like um, when I got into him, yeah. I I was trying to think about it, like how I got into him. I definitely got into him from from the eighties. Um, like I found out about Sabbath and Rainbow and everything afterwards, kind of like how I did with a lot of my favorite bands, like uh, kind of like Coverdale and Whitesnake, how we 87 album was the entry point. We found out there was this whole history mm-hmm. beforehand that was kind of the same with Ronnie, um, especially after he passed away. And I found out there was even more of a layer to dig into with his 50s stuff and everything. But um, I think it was just the same thing as everything else was like uh, the like magazines and like uh, videos on MTV. It's like, if you were into that type of music, then you, you got, you got interested in kind of the, the, the residual like acts that went along with it. Like if, if you liked like Sabbath, then eventually you're going to hear about Dio and you'll hear about rainbow and so on and so forth. So, um, and when I heard his stuff, it like immediately like, you know, resonated with me. Um, I think Around the time I got into him was around his newest album was Lock Up the Wolves. So that was early 90s, like 1990, I think. Even though it was my my least favorite, that was like the new album at the time. So that was the video um, Wild One that was playing on MTV all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of went backwards and I got his his videos, which actually I dug out for the podcast, which I don't usually do. But this one, this was the one, the Special from the Spectrum VHS. Oh yeah, I've got the same one. <laughs> which which I used to have on, like all the time in the background. It's like one of my favorite shows, and that was like got me, like hooked on Ronnie, the visuals, and you know just how cool he was. Yeah, well, they really they really brought a lot to that show. <laughs> a lot going on, a lot of visuals, and uh, oh, yeah, just an ama- amazing performance. Um, so you, you you were talking kind of the toughness about Ronnie. There's a great story in your book about um, 
they went into like some some kind of bar and somebody threw a fork at him. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mickey, Mickey Lee Sewell told me that story. I interviewed him. And, yeah. And he said, Ronnie turned around. Who threw that fork at me? You know? And he said, that was Ronnie. He said, he said, Ronnie wasn't about to take shit from anyone anyone <laughs> the way you painted the picture in that book it's it seemed like that scene in peewee's big adventure when he goes into the biker bar and like i, I just imagined <laughs> that it kind of that scenario where everyone just kind of turned around and saw him and threw the fork and then he, he's like who threw that fork and everyone just everyone <laughs> shut up and it was completely silent like you yeah, said the whole place went quiet it, it could have yeah. gone so much worse for him <laughs> sure and you know you're talking you're talking like Mickey said, not very big guys at all. But Ronnie just stood up and he said, everybody shut up and nobody said a word. And then, then they kind of got scared when they walked out. They walked out, they got went a little faster, a little faster, <laughs> and then they ran to their car. <laughs> there was a bunch of truckers in there and big biker guys. So, but that was Ronnie. You know, he was tough. He was tough. He, you know, grew up in a tough neighborhood in a tough time, you know. That is great. But, but a very nice guy too. And, and, and it seemed like from the... Um... I think I think I remember from your book, but you it, you you, you kind of listed all the heights of all the people and the elves, and he was one of the taller ones, right? If not That's the tallest, right, <laughs> his cousin Dave Feinstein is actually five one. <laughs> Jeez, and Ronnie topped out at about five four. And uh, I talked to Dave too, and Dave said, "Yeah, that's true. He he is taller than me, you know." And then yeah, and I can't remember the other guys were you know five 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 six so. Yeah, that's another great era of, Ronnie, of Ronnie's music is Elf. Good stuff. Yeah, we covered um, a few episodes ago, episode 48, we, we covered the first Elf album. And you did clear up something that we talked about on the album, which is that that picture right there is actually Ronnie. It is. It is. Wow. So, Mickey Lee Sewell told me it was Ronnie, and they, they fixed him up and put some makeup on and stuff. And, <laughs> and uh, it was Dave. I think, I think he said it was Dave Feinstein who actually took the photo. Oh, yeah, we had a little debate on that. We always growing up wow. getting that album as kids. We were listening to it forever. And we always just assumed it was Ronnie on the front. But we just and we were on the episode. We were like we had never really kind of verbalized it before. We're like, is that him? We're we not really sure. Mm -hmm. So um, it's great to, to have that cleared up. <laughs> but um, yeah, D Dave Feinstein did, did some really great work on that album, too. Yeah, he's a he's a phenomenal guitar player, really is, and super nice guy. Oh man! And he would have been very young at that first Elf album, right? Oh yeah, yeah, because he was actually oh I can't remember now, five or seven years younger than Ronnie. Oh wow! So he was he was you know maybe eighteen, nineteen, somewhere around there, twenty. Wow. You know, yeah, really young guy. There's another great story you have in the book about. Um... You know, about I forgot what it, it was a show that they were going to be playing. I think I don't know if it was with the elves yet or what it what it was, what stage it was along the, the process. But the, there was like a timid young uh, they had booked something wrong. And the timid young guy goes up to Ronnie because he has to tell him, uh, oh, we have a three hour show to fill and you were only supposed to play 45 minutes. And he's all scared. And Ronnie's just like, well, we'll play three hours. Who cares? Like just completely <laughs> brushed it off. Like, <laughs> but it's pretty, pretty amazing that just being prepared to play 45 minutes and just say, Oh sure. We'll stretch it to three hours. I mean, yeah, yeah. Dave, Dave told me the same thing. He, he remembered that show and he, uh, he was like, Oh yeah, yeah. We just went ahead and played, you know, for it was three or three and a half hours. They just stuck it out and he goes, but that's what we love to do. You know, we just, just play. And then he, they all got photos at the end. Those are some of the photos in the book of, of them actually at the end of the show. 
That's great. I've been in bands before where we would have just had to say, um, we're going to have to play the same thing three times then. <laughs> we don't have that much material. Um, <laughs> time's over. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't too long after that when they got discovered by Deep Purple. Yeah, and then they ended up playing with them for um, for quite a bit. I was just covering some of the uh, the recent uh, Made in Europe um, recordings were happening around this time, April 3rd, 5th, and 7th, I think, were the three shows that made up Made in Europe. And Elf was the opening act for them on those shows. Mm -hmm. So they right. were going, and, you know, soon after would be, I guess at, at concurrently at that time would have been, would have been recording with Richie. Yeah. Um, and Feinstein said, when I talked to Dave, he said at that point, you know, he said uh, Zeppelin and Deep Purple, Deep Purple, were, they were about the two biggest bands in the world at that point. And he said, you know, next thing I know, we're touring with Deep Purple. Yeah. And he said it was amazing opening up for him. It's incredible. Yeah, lucky guys. <laughs> um, you have some, some there's some good stuff too. Um, you know, when we uh, hopefully get a chance to talk talk with Claude, um, he, mentioning that he, he, I guess he mentions a couple times. You mentioned a couple times in the book that he brought people on with basically no audition, including Claude, mm -hmm. and saying, you know, well, you played with Glenn Hughes, so if you're good enough for Glenn Hughes, you're sure. you'll you'll be fine for me. And he was just kind of shocked. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And Craig Goldie said the same thing. Craig Goldie said he didn't have an audition either. So was this like, what, what was that kind of, in your research, what was that level of trust Ronnie had with musicians? Well, he had already known the guys. So he had seen them play. You know, he had seen Craig play and he had seen uh, Claude play because he had actually wanted Claude to go on tour about a year earlier before Claude had really joined Dio. So he knew Claude was a, was a phenomenal keyboardist. And he knew Craig was a great guitar player. So he didn't, you know, there was no audition needed. He already knew they were good and they, he, they could, they could play the music and they would fit well in the band, you know, but yeah, that's, so those are the stories Claude told me, you know. The book is, um, this book has a lot of great stories. One of the, <laughs> one of the ones that's the funniest to me is Ronnie had this, I guess from the car crash, he had like a, an issue with his, his hair kind of grew weird. Yeah. And he had like yep. this kind of swirly thing. So the swirly, he had like a, a cowlick or I guess you'd yeah, call a it. Cowlick, exactly. And they, they called it, they named it Eric. <laughs> That's right. Because I interviewed Claude's really good friends with a guy named Joey Belfori. And Joey was Ronnie's hairdresser for 20 years. He was only got to touch his hair for 20 years. And uh, so I, I got on the phone with Joey and we wound up talking about five or six times on the phone. And he told me just tons of stuff about Ronnie. And yeah, that's true. He said he named his calic Eric. And, uh, and yeah, Ronnie was in a horrific car accident in about 1968 or 69. And Dave was in the car and Mickey Lee Sewell and, uh, uh, oh, what's the other guy's name? The guy who managed Motley Crue. Anyway, Ronnie went through the windshield and was basically scalped. It just oh, tore his scalp. Wow. He had about, I, I can't remember what it was, 500 stitches or something, five or 600 stitches. You know, ripped his scalp up and, and it just, so he had a really bad scar and Joey had to constantly cut his hair to co help cover up the scar and keep that kind of hidden, you know? But, uh, yeah. They're lucky they didn't get killed. You know? Oof, wow. Yeah. And he was a drunk driver across the center line and hit him. Yikes. 
And you, you mentioned too that people thought that Ronnie was kind of balding, but it was just from a remnant from that accident, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he had a full head of hair, but that, that horrific scar just kind of messed up his scalp a little bit, you know? Yikes. So, but Joey was pretty good at cutting his hair and keeping it, keeping it hidden throughout the years. <laughs> wow. So, um, so yeah, obviously rainbow probably kind of solidified Dio as being, or, or started his path along being this like legendary heavy metal mm-hmm. guy. Um, Absolutely. I posted um, I w- in preparation for this episode, I posted some questions on Twitter, like, Hey, what's your favorite um, Ronnie song from elf? What's your favorite Dio song from rainbow? What's your favorite thinking? You know, I just want to kind of get a consensus. And when I did the one for rainbow, I got like 300 replies it just every song you could imagine. I mean, ob- obvious ones, Stargazer, Gates of Babylon kind of came up a lot, but um, wasn't expecting that kind of response. So I was like, wow, it just it, it really kind of struck home people that follow us, people that don't follow us just all over the map. People responding about the rainbow and um, and Sabbath and Dio eras, just uh, all of these different legendary heavy, heavy metal songs. So um, when we go into the rainbow era, obviously, um, kind of starts off a little tense, you know, Richie takes on Elf and then basically just kind of uses it for parts, takes Ronnie and, and, and builds a new band around it. Um, did you get the sense that there was some kind of resentment from the get go that Ronnie couldn't let go of from that? Yeah. And, uh, when I talked to Mickey Lee Sewell, uh, you know, everybody was, everybody was kind of pissed off because they were just systematically getting tossed out of the band. You know, that didn't make anybody happy. And Ronnie didn't like it, but, you know, it was Richie's band. So, you know, it was what it was, I guess. But yeah, it was, it was kind of a bad thing, you know, getting rid of everybody like that. And I thought they were, I thought they were great as they were, but I talked to Colin Hart, who was uh, part of the whole Deep Purple and Rainbow. And, uh, you know, he said it was just Richie's, uh, quest to find the perfect band, you know, his, his ultimate quest to find the perfect band, but he constantly has a revolving door, you know? Yeah. But it was kind of a crappy thing to do to the guys, you know, they were great. And, and of course, rainbows legendary. I mean, I can't even tell you how much, how fantastic those guys are. Oh, I'm sure, you know. <laughs> yeah. They're, I mean, un- unbelievable stuff uh, in the, you know, the, the, we've only covered the first two rainbow albums on, on the show, but obviously we're going to cover them all. And um, we've been listening to them for years and they're just, uh, it's yeah, exceptional stuff. And I mean, anything with Dio though is his, I mean, as a front man and as, as just somebody with some power and voice is just, it, it's hard to beat him. Yeah. And you couple that with Richie Blackmore, <laughs> you know, great guitar player. I mean, Oh man, they, 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 they certainly made a great team, you know, music wise. So with, um, in the rainbow era, we've got, um, you know, obviously even just the time, the short time that Dio was with the band, it was like you said, a revolving door, Mm -hmm. lots of people in and out. Um, and eventually he makes the decision to leave, um, uh, it's, it sounds like when you, a lot of the themes that come up with Ronnie in the book and what you read about him is uh, he's very much a band guy. And uh, you can see it in interviews with him when he's 
looking through albums and saying like, oh, there's too many pictures of this one person and not enough of the band. He's he's very much about the band as a unit. And from from your talking to all of these bandmates of him, do you do you get the feeling that he he did have kind of that his ego was in check or that he was that he lived up to that that what he said about being like really big fan of the band? I would say so. Absolutely. However, I would also say that he was the leader. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was the leader, but he was definitely a band guy. You know, I would, I would agree with that. Absolutely. But there was no question about who ruled. Yeah. The you guy know? you don't want to throw his, a fork at. It was his <laughs> band. Yeah, exactly. The guy you don't want to throw a fork at. It was his band, but he was definitely a band guy. So some obvious, you know, the tension between him and Vivian, and it seems like in your book, you said that they kind of had mostly mended it before Ronnie's passing, um, Mm -hmm. which is good because it was (laughs) pretty ugly there for a little bit. Um, So it seemed to be kind of in your book, you talk a lot about how there was this constant like he had made this kind of verbal agreement with with Vivian about payment, about about his compensation and maybe didn't live up to that or maybe Wendy had stepped in or Wendy wasn't aware of the agreement. Um, did you see, did you run into any other stories like that or was it mostly the thing between him and Vivian? Just mostly between him and Vivian. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, you know, uh, he, he didn't really live up to, to what they had agreed upon. You know, mm-hmm. I can, I can see that now with all the research I've done, people I've talked to, you know, and a lot of it did have to do with Wendy, who was the manager at the time, you know. But uh, yeah, and, and it pissed Vivian off because the, the the deal wasn't honored. So ultimately, it led to him leaving, you know. And some of the other band members weren't real happy about that, you know. You'll get a chance to talk to Claude, and he he felt it was very unfair mm-hmm. you know, for Vivian to be fired that way, you know. So. And it caused a lot of resentment with Vivian. You know, it took him years to get over that. Years. And when I talked to him during doing the book, when I interviewed him a couple of times, you know, he I could tell he was still a little bit pissed off. <laughs> it still bothered him. Wow. You know, 20, what, 20, 30 years later? You know, I could tell it, it still pissed him off. So definitely. So if this, is, if this is the only, if he was the only band member like what if i'm understanding right that um there wasn't a like um his contract wasn't honored or it looks like it just you know that wasn't like a a business practice of like ronnie and wendy to you know basically screw people over is what you're saying so why do why do you think that it happened with with vivian in particular well vivian from what i understand vivian was the only one that began questioning it you know he said hey we had a verbal agreement between Ronnie, Vivian, uh, Vinny Apice, and and Jimmy Bain. Vivian was the one who started bringing it up and started bugging Ronnie about it. And it just escalated from there. The other two guys just kept their mouths shut. And they had a job in the band. They got paid. But Vivian wanted more. He wanted the agreement to be honored. And he was the one. And then Claude said Vivian was the one that just kept bugging Ronnie. You know, and finally Ronnie said, I'm going to get rid of him. I'm going to get rid of him. You know? And Vivian... You know, well, you know, you're fired. Well, I quit, you know, one yeah. of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. But yeah, he was the one who kept bugging. He kept doing it. So that's and, how it went. 
And then Dio kind of went through um, quite a few different eras and changes. And of course, this was as we get into late 80s, early 90s, it's um, the music industry and the tastes are changing a lot. So mm -hmm. um, a little bit. I mean, you see it a little bit with some bands where they're just kind of sticking to their guns and it sounds like Dio maybe sort of half-heartedly tried to, to capitalize on whatever the the flavor of the day was. Or, sure. Um, you saw that with some other bands. Uh, like, you know, Kit. Where did you see that with, uh, where did you see that with Dio? Oh, when they did, uh, when they did Strange Highways, the yeah. album Strange Highways and Angry Machines, you know, they changed up big time. You know, and a lot of fans weren't happy about that. You know, some fans liked it, but I would say the majority at the time didn't like it. You know, that's interesting because if you ask Nate, when bands do a, a like a 180 like that, I usually hate it. And those are actually two of my favorite albums. When they yeah. came out, I loved the direction you went in because it was like Ronnie got like like a hundred times heavier. So I yeah. was like, I was thrilled. Love and I love highways. Love that yeah, album. Me too. And yeah, I think that that album is really a gem. And it's, and it's gotten only more popular over time. And I talked to uh, Jeff Pilsen. You know, I've interviewed him because I did a doc yeah. recently. And uh, he loves that album too, loves it. And he says he can see it too, that it's far more popular now than it was when it first came out. It just took, you know, 20 years for everybody to figure it out. <laughs> I think it, it works out that way a lot of the time. Is is mm -hmm. it, it seems like in the moment that you're, I don't know, selling out or whatever you want to call it, selling out or not being true to whatever your original, you know, everyone's got their own things to say. We talk about it all the time with Deep Purple and people say, sure. oh, Richie, if it's not Richie Blackmore, it's not Deep Purple. And, you know, people, people won't accept anything other than the whatever their favorite lineup was. But it's sure. uh, it's good to see that in the in hindsight and looking back at it, that people can appreciate those albums a little bit more, not think of them as, you know, too, too much of a stylistic departure or what have you. Yeah. I, I don't I think mean, Ronnie sold out on those albums. You know, no, 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 not at all. I, you know, no, I mean, there was like, I can't have it. Like Ronnie just was so diverse that I can't, like it never occurred to me that he sold out on those albums. I just thought that he got, he got like heavier. I was just like, okay, this is just like more of a spin on, because I mean, he was doing, um, you know, hoochie coochie, whatever in the seventies. And then he was doing, right. you know, rainbows, wishing wells, dragons. So then he's doing like computers and like the Terminator or whatever. So I was just happy with all of it because to me it was just Ronnie evolving. And then, yeah, you know, exactly. That's the way I look at it. He's just, you know, he's just going with it. And, and this is, the, this is, this is him evolving. Exactly. It's, it's not selling out. I mean, you can yeah. tell when a band sells out, you know, it's not what Ronnie did. There's yeah, like I don't, yeah, I don't think anything out, but holy crap, you know, Ronnie, no, no, Strange Highways got, if anything, like you're saying, it got heavier. Yeah, because I mean, funny. I don't think anything on those two albums, like he was like, oh, these are going to be radio hits, you know. Like, <laughs> no, it's not like exactly. He didn't, he didn't wake up and go, I'm going to, you know, get some big hair and some spandex, and no, he just, he, he kept it rocking. Yeah. And honestly, I was kind of disappointed when he kind of went back to his roots, so to speak, when he did uh, Magica. I was just kind of like, mm, all right. It felt like, I mean, at the time, felt like he'd already you know, been there. Like, like, yeah, you know, just like, oh, it's a it's a I mean, I thought it was cool. He decided to tackle like a concept album and it was like a return to form and everything. But um, and, and Craig Goldie was back. But I was just kind of like, oh, I kind of wanted him to keep going in that direction. Right. 
that was my feeling. But I mean, you know, time is, um, you know, proven just like with the other albums. When you listen back, it's much better than it was, you know, to me at the time, you know, because I remember seeing him on that tour and he played like he was playing clubs and he did like a bulk of the the magic album. And I was like, Oh God, stop. I wanted to hear like anything else. And he was doing like half the set was the magic CD. And I was just not happy with it, but you know, it was still Ronnie. So, I mean, I wasn't unhappy seeing it. Right. But I was kind of just like, Oh man. I, th- I think Ronnie. if there's, if there's one thing doing the show has taught us, it's that, um, Maybe when we were listening to this stuff and we didn't have social media, we didn't have these big groups of people. We kind of formed our own opinions of these different albums. And one of the ones that comes up a lot is not necessarily John, but with me, my favorite Mark II album by Deep Purple is Who Do We Think We Are? Mm-hmm. And that's like almost literally no one else's favorite Mark II album. But I, I never really thought about it. And then when you get onto these um, some of these groups on Facebook or whatever, it's just basically everyone kind of agreeing that like, well, we've all come to an agreement. That's the worst one. And it's terrible. And not a lot of thoughtful dialogue about why that is. Um, we talked about it on the show. It's not John's favorite, but um, I think we didn't, we were able to kind of form before social media, maybe form some opinions on things uh, that were kind of our own. And just from me, just sitting and listening to that album with nobody mm-hmm. to really talk to about it. Um, and it can be kind of the same thing with, with Dio, I'm sure too, as people just say, oh, well, those albums in the early nineties or whatever, are not, you know, we've all agreed that those are not the right ones, but diehard fans will have different opinions. Sure. Sure. Well, it also depends on your, like your entry point too. Like, I mean, if there was somebody that was our age or even younger, like in the 90, the, the mid to late nineties and that, that was their Dio album, they might have more of a soft spot for it than the sure. stuff that came out before they were born. Sure. You know? Yeah, I like the stuff that I grew up with. I like, you know, Holy Diver and Last in Line. Those are my first two albums, and those are, mm. those. you know, I listen to them all the time still, you know? Everything yeah. else is second. And you, yeah. you just went to the record store, and you were like, oh, I heard something by Dio, and I really liked it. Let's see, let's see what they have. You didn't have no idea what the timeline or the discography. There was no uh, website to check out. You just said, oh, okay, well, this is what the record store has today. I'm going to buy these one or two right. albums. This is how much money I have, and that's how you kind of got into it. Yeah, yeah. but you know, an interesting thing, though, um, about that is, is, like, without social media, the the like, the the print you know, magazines and stuff like that. Um, I, I think at least were a big influence on me, almost like social media, because when I would read like the, the polls or like the top 10 metal albums of all time, whatever it's like, you know, Holy Diver, Last in Line, uh, Rainbow Rising, it was just universally agreed upon whoever was writing these articles. Those are the great ones. Mm-hmm. And then um, Long Live Rock and Roll was like the album before Ronnie quit. So that one sucked because, you know, that was his last album or... Sacred Heart wasn't as good because there was tension in the band before Vivian got fired. So that one wasn't as good as the first two, but it's like, why, why wasn't it? It's because they said so. (laughs) Right. Right. And so it's kind of the same thing is, it's like you keep reading the same, you know, articles in hip parader, circus, rip, whatever um, I used to read. And it was always the same opinions on the same albums. It's just like you, you can't challenge last in line. Like that's, that's just it. That's the best. Everything else is garbage. You know, by the time he got to, uh, dream evil it was it was just kind of like fluff so it's like you know who's who's to say make your own opinions right. but I, yourself yeah 
So yeah, but, I, mean, I mean, I I went by those. That was kind of the early social media, so to speak, mm-hmm. because I would just be like, oh well, that, that I keep reading that that album stinks, so it has to stink, and then I listen to it, and be like, yeah, it stinks, and I, <laughs> I don't know why, but you know. So maybe it was like the whoever the writers were for like Kerrang and Circus and all those like the few the, yeah. those few guys, but now it's just like an echo chamber of thousands of them in these in message boards years ago, and now in Facebook groups and. Oh, yeah. Now you can get a million different, including ours. You know, you can get everybody's opinion on Earth about um, which albums are the best. And everybody, I feel, could get more of a fair shake. Just kind of like, you know, when we had our episode on um, who do we think we are, we actually had reasons for why we thought this song was good or this song wasn't good. Not just, but everybody says it stinks. Right. Well, and I think it's you know, it's also about what resonates with you and what what speaks to yeah. you. And and I we always try to say, you know, this is my it's I'm not saying this is the best. I'm saying this is my favorite. Like, I, for whatever reason, I, I like this song like it. It doesn't mean it's the best song. doesn't mean it's the worst. It's just for some reason what I like. Right. All right. So, again, this book is really great. Highly recommend it. Um, going past this book. Um, you know, you do, you just said you were working on another book, right? That's going to be coming out soon. Yes. Uh, I just finished up a book on Dawkins. Excellent. Should be out in about two weeks. Wow. Oh, two. Yeah. Oh, very. Oh, awesome. so, so by the time this airs, uh, your book on Dawkins will be out. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. great. Um, uh, one thing, one thing I think we just, we, we should probably talk about, um, with, with Ronnie before we, uh, before we break is, uh, we, uh, it comes up a lot in our circles and John's we've talked about it in one of our episodes is the Dio hologram tour. What, what are your thoughts or your feelings on that? Uh, I don't have any interest in it myself. Uh, I, I guess if it makes the fans happy, you know, more power to them, but I, I, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really big on it. I lean towards not being big on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I lean towards not being big on it. That's a much, that's a much Have less you seen it. <laughs> the guy's, you know, he's passed away and his musical live on and, you know. I mean, so I, I take it you haven't gone to see it live. Uh, like, no, I, no, it I haven't. Now? I have not seen oh, okay. it live, so I can't judge it. You know, I can't really judge yeah. it without seeing it, but just my feeling is, eh, you know, eh, not yep. a big fan. I we have, we have, that's a uh, much less passionate than a lot of pe- people who haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I may go and it may be fantastic. I don't know. But uh, if it makes fans happy, I guess it's okay. If it makes you happy and you've never seen Ronnie and you go there and you see a hologram, you know, uh, I know a few of the guys I've interviewed from the bands, they have much stronger opinions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you interview Claude, he'll he'll be more than happy to tell you his feelings on it. Oh boy, we'll have to we'll have to hear this. <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, have any of you guys seen it? Um, I saw it. Um, when um, what, what was it? Nate, last summer? Yeah. Or yeah, I saw oh, it when it was. Before? Yeah, and um, yeah, whenever whenever it was, I saw it, and um, you know, I was. I wanted to give it a try uh, sure. because I mean, I'd seen like, uh, I'm, I'm sure you have, I've seen Ronnie a bunch of times live. So, right. I mean, you know, that was the thing to measure it up against. And I've actually seen the Dio disciples um, with uh, Ripper Owens singing. 
Yeah. Um, I, I'm just Rip Rowan's on vocals. So I thought that that was really a cool thing. And so when I saw the hologram and they said that they had, you know, uh, perfected it or changed it from uh, the last time that it was out, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe this will be good. And while I thought the the show was impressive and the music, and I liked when the live vocalists came out, like Ripper mm-hmm. uh, came out and um, um, the other guy came out. Um, what was his name? Do you remember his name, Nate? Uh, um, I didn't. The guy from Lynch Mob. Um, oh, oh, Oni Logan. Yeah, yeah, Oni Logan was there. So they were both doing vocals in okay. between, like the the hologram being there and not being there. And I didn't, I didn't really like the hologram itself because it it live it looked it looked kind of fake. Like it looked like it it was uh, it was it wasn't done yet. It wasn't done baking. <laughs> they didn't, you know. And a lot of the movements were really unnatural. Like I mean, we've seen Ronnie live, so we know he moved, and he did this really weird like swaying thing where he was like swaying down like like this down near his knees. And I'm like, Ronnie never did that. That looks so I, weird. I saw it on YouTube some of the clips, and it didn't yeah. look the way exactly the way he was moving did not look yeah. like I remember seeing him, and I saw him four or five times. Yeah. And one time I saw him, I was five feet from the stage. I mean, I can yeah. see the sweat dripping off his forehead. And yeah, I'm thinking, no, he did not do exactly the same thing. He didn't do that. He didn't move like that. And I mean, I know it's not a, um, like, it's not a, a exact replica of like uh, the experience of seeing him live, but it's just like, if they were going to do it, then um, I don't know. I just feel like maybe a little more time, could have been put into it before they rolled it out, I guess, because it, it doesn't, it wasn't really that impressive. But what I did like was there was a, there was a portion where they were, they were, the live band was doing the show and they had like up on the screen, they were showing shots of like, um, I guess a, a show of in the mid eighties because Craig Goldie was in the footage and it was kind of synced up to in that, in that live footage of Ronnie singing. And I'm like, I would have even preferred that to seeing the hologram because it, it was more, I guess, kind of nostalgic or, right. uh, but I mean, overall, the, the, I thought the show was well done. The sound was good. I mean, you would have, if you closed your eyes, you would have sworn it was a live show with Ronnie singing. Right. Cause I mean, and the, um, like the, uh, the light show was great. The band was great. Um, but yeah, the, the hologram, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't go see it again. I go see the Dio Disciples first because right, that was just yeah. cool. Yeah, that was just cool seeing them doing justice to Ronnie's yeah, and songs. I think that's great. I like the idea of some tribute bands like that with maybe some original members, you know, or guys yeah. that knew Ronnie or worked with them. Or I have no problem with that. The Last in Line, Dio Disciples, guys like that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, the hologram thing kind of kind of turned me off a bit, you know. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen the Dio Disciples and Last in Line a couple of times. They come here to Sacramento, and uh, they always put on good shows, you know, and I, I really like it. I really enjoy it. It's a good way to keep Ronnie's legacy and music going. You know? Yeah. And, you know, there's plenty of videos out there. If you want to see what it was like to go to a concert in the 80s, you know, they've got the, the Live at the Spectrum and all that. You know, you can watch the whole show, the whole concert, two hours, you know? Yeah. So, you know. But, yeah, to each their own, I guess, if, if it makes them happy to go see, a, 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 you know, some young kid never got to see Ronnie. Hey, I guess that's as close as you're going to get. <laughs> so speaking of Ronnie themed events, have you been to the, um, to the, uh, the Dio, um, the, uh, the Dio cancer, um, the ride for Ronnie? No, I've never been there, but I have been down to the heavy metal hall of fame a couple of times, uh, this past year when, uh, when, uh, Don Dawkins and, and, uh, Steve Vai and those guys were, were 
inducted and then the year mm-hmm. before. And I've been down to Nam a couple of times, but I've never done the camp, the ride for Ronnie or the bowling. I know they have an event where everybody goes bowling and Jack Black's there and all that. Yeah. I've never done either of those. I wouldn't mind doing that, you know, and maybe mingling with some people. No, it was, uh, I had actually gone for the first time last May and I'm, I'm bummed that, um, this, this year it's obviously not going to happen. Um, but it was, um, it was really cool. I have a friend that lives, uh, in LA and he invited me out there just for that. And he's like, don't get your expectations too high. It's not this big thing. It's just a small park and everything. And, and it was, it was a small park and they had like the, when I walked in, the bullet boys were, were playing and uh, it was like, cool. it, it was very cool. They had a, they had um like, you know, around the perimeter, they had uh you know, uh, tents with like, you know, auction items, like all the money, you know, and the entrance fee and everything of course goes to the, uh, the charity. Right. Uh, Wendy Dio was there. Um, uh, Eddie Trunk hosted it. They had like uh, some, some like uh, guest musicians, like uh, Dave Grohl, stuff like that. So it was, it was just a cool, like kind of afternoon in the park, seeing a bunch of guys like that playing and they did some Ronnie songs and they did some other 80s stuff and it was just a really cool vibe, but it was a lot of fun. And knowing that like all the proceeds go to, sure. um, you know, the, uh, the Ronnie's uh, cancer fund. Um, yeah. They do really the same cool. thing in uh, Cortland, New York, where Ronnie grew up. They have a DO day out there. Uh, oh, yeah. once a year or once every two years, something like that. And uh, I donated a bunch of books and stuff and they give the money to uh, a scholarship fund for the, for the high school where Ronnie went and, and then, you know, kid gets the money, whatever kid wins a scholarship, he gets the money and stuff. So, but Dave finds time awesome. part of all that and everything, the Ronnie James Dio scholarship fund, I think it's called. Uh, so that's cool. They have a big Dio day and everybody shows up out there and they have bands playing and, I was going to try to make it out there one of these days, you know, fly out there and hang out in New York for a day. You know, sounds fun. Oh yeah, it does. That's awesome. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like uh, Dio's legacy is alive and strong despite uh, whatever quibbles some may have with the hologram. Um, oh, yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's definitely doing good. You talked in your book too about, uh, the, the the statue I, we I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've seen it too John the statue of mm-hmm. Ronnie in the in the rock in in Bulgaria um, mm-hmm. and I always thought it was just like you know well obviously in Europe they love metal so um, but but in your book you mentioned that he was he had played a part in in liberating some nurses that were being held hostage yeah which, I, I can't remember that entire story now which is yeah there was yeah exactly there was that was uh, so I guess there were some nurses from Bulgaria that were being held hostage in Libya and That's Ronnie right. for, for somehow and uh, was played a part in, in, in liberating them after being held hostage for eight years. And that was part of the reason why they, they built the statue. It wasn't just because, oh, it's Eastern Europe, Europe and we love metal here. <laughs> right. But yeah, they do. They definitely love them down there. I mean, he was like a uh, god. Sure. And it's amazing to, to think of these kind of things that he's that he did while he was alive. And even after his passing, the, these great charities and things that have sprung up, the scholarship and the, the cancer fund that, that he's continuing to do good in the world, even sure. even though it's been 10 years since he passed. Well, there's even that story in the book where he talks a guy down from suicide. Oh, yes. <laughs> Somebody had told me that story. So I researched it a little bit and I found out it was true. Wow. And also, I put it in the book there. And, it's yeah. one of those stories that sounds made up, like, no, that yeah. can't be. <laughs> but there was other people that verified it. Said, oh, yeah, that really happened. It really happened. Yeah, 
like, okay. So yeah, a guy was like uh, was having some sort of mental issue. He was saying he wasn't. Right. He would only talk to Ronnie James Dio. So they brought Ronnie yeah. James Dio they out. Brought him he, down there. He drove down there and talked the guy down and went home like it was no big deal. Unbelievable. Now he wasn't a chess pounder, so he's like, yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> Help the guy out. I'm going back wow. home. See ya. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like, okay. Well, what a what a guy and what a legacy he leaves behind. And uh, thank yeah. you for thank you for giving us this great book. You'll have to hey. check it out, Ronnie James Dio. It, it was really fun to write. It was I had so much fun. I interviewed so many great people, and everybody I interviewed was super nice. You know, Vivian Campbell and Rowan Robertson and everybody. They were just really a great group of guys. I could, that was one thing that surprised me was how nice everybody was. You know, Tracy G and just everybody, they were more than willing to just, here's my home phone number. Call me. We'll talk. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the phone with Vivian Campbell. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> you know? And, you know, just two or three interviews. No problem. They're just really nice guys. And yeah, maybe that comes, Ronnie is always well known for being someone who always made time for fans and, and would sign right. the autographs for as long as it took. And he must've, he must've created that sort of, culture and an atmosphere in his band bands that his bandmates uh carry on to this day that's right, yeah. great to see was, uh, was there anybody um that you you uh you tried to get in touch with or wanted to interview that for one reason or another just didn't pan out there were several guys that basically either did not respond back even though i knew i got a hold of them or you know nobody really said anything but there were just there were some guys that didn't want to talk for one reason or another. Some guys wanted to write their own books. Some guys want you know don't want to tell the stories and the secrets and the back behind the scenes stuff. And, mm. But you know, I just figured I'm going to take what, what whoever wants to talk, I'll talk to. And you know, and I reached out to you know probably four or five different people I wish I could have talked with. And for one reason or another, you know, a couple of people I tried to reach out and get a hold of Tony Iommi and his. Mm -hmm. I don't know who it was, his manager or publicist said, well, if it's not an authorized biography, we can't talk to you. You know, you don't mm -hmm. have permission. And I said, well, okay. You know, so if I, I ran into a few of those, you know, Richie Blackmore, same thing. If it's not authorized, I can't talk to you. you know? So it would have been nice to talk to those guys, you know, Oh yeah. just, just to be able to brag that I talked to, you know, Tony Iommi <laughs> or Richie Blackmore, you know, would be yeah. cool. But uh, yeah, but, but, for the most part, I found that, you know, about 75% of everybody I reached out to said, yes, you know, you're more than willing to help. That's great. Great. Yeah. Really that's cool. That's awesome. Well, we want to really thank you for uh, coming to our show, to our little show and talking about your great book and uh, anyone out there, if you're interested in learning about Dio, read Ronnie James Dio, a biography of a heavy metal icon by James Curl. Well, thanks for stopping by, James. Hey, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. All right. You have a great night. You too. All right. So hopefully you enjoyed that interview. We'll have another interview coming up with Claude Schnell on the channel as well. That will be the expanded full interview that we had with Claude. So thanks for tuning in to this special bonus episode and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. 
You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. How you doing? Oh, good. How are you? Nice to meet you. Not too bad. I figured I would start with the most basic question uh, about what was wrong with your mic, and it happened to be the first one I asked, so. Yep, which is why you're the technical guy (laughs) and I'm just the buffoon that shows up. (laughs)